1: to turn penelope's world upside down
0: mm, this is the ultimate good friends to lovers story from those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them watch bridget in season three now playing only on netflix
1: yeah, one of the most iconic albums ever made, with the tracks from Rumours still trending and yes, charting today. But the stories behind those songs of lust, drugs and betrayal might just be more memorable than the album itself. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited.
0: Zara McDonald,
1: Michelle Andrews, we are back and I am very excited for this episode. We sort
0: of Set
1: up Fleetwood Mac in the last episode, but this is really where the heart of the scandal lies, right?
0: This is where it all happens. This is where the drama absolutely goes down. Now, where did we leave last episode? What are some of the key things that we learned?
1: Yeah. So we left off with the five members of Fleetwood Mac, Stevie, Lindsay, Christine, John and Mick. They had pushed out their self-titled album Fleetwood Mac. They had gone on tour. It had been a roaring success. And then they had to back up that album with another really good album.
0: Yeah, the pressure was absolutely on and not just for them to release a banger album to follow up Fleetwood Mac, but also for them just to keep it the fuck together. Things were getting very, very messy at the end of episode one. So not only did we have rampant drug use within the band. Every single member abusing cocaine in particular. We also had some pretty fractious relationships. Lindsay and Stevie were not in a good place in their long-term on-again, off-again romance. The marriage of Christine and John McVie was not looking so good And Mick Fleetwood's wife, Jenny, had also cheated on him a few years prior and they were still trying to get over that. Yeah, exactly. It was all incredibly
1: messy. At this point in time, Stevie Nicks was 27, Lindsay Buckingham was 26. So they're still quite young. Like there is still a real immaturity here, of course. So at the end of the last episode, Mish, as you said, we had started to talk about the breakdown of Stevie and Lindsay's relationship after five years together. Let's rewind now to 1970 and talk about that a little bit more.
0: All right, Zara, it is January 1976 and the band is actually scheduled to start recording a follow-up album to that Fleetwood Mac album. They've come off a huge six-month-long tour. They're pretty tired, but they need to get to work.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they had recorded their last album, that self-titled Fleetwood Mac album in LA. But Mick Fleetwood, who at this point very much feels like the captain of the band, right, has decided that the band need a change of scenery. They need to get out of LA. And he arranged for them to work on this next album in a studio in Sausalito, California.
0: Yeah. So Lindsay and Stevie, who had begun dating five years prior in 1971, were having huge relationship troubles. I mean, they'd always been pretty rocky, but things were reaching fever pitch. Now, several sources have suggested that Lindsay struggled with losing control of Stevie Nicks. He felt like maybe she was, I don't know, forging her own path a little too much or she was experiencing freedom and he didn't like that for her. And that was a huge cause of tension. Yeah. Stevie Nicks
1: at this point in time was on her way to becoming a huge rock icon and a huge musician in her own right. And I think we have to remember with these two, rightly or wrongly, They had always been in each other's pockets when it comes to their music careers. According to a biography of Stevie's life called Stevie Nicks Vision, Dreams and Rumours, Mick Fleetwood actually said... When they first joined the band, Lindsay had control over Stevie and very slowly he began to lose control and he really didn't like it.
0: Yeah, Rolling Stone later wrote that Stevie would hint that Buckingham was at least somewhat possessive and controlling. She herself told the magazine once, I don't even remember what the issues were. I just know that it got to the point where I wanted to be by myself. It just wasn't good anymore. Wasn't fun anymore. Wasn't good for either of us anymore. I'm just the one who stopped it. Feels very much like she was outgrowing him and he Mm. didn't like
1: that. And I think that's a dynamic you actually see time and time and time again of people in their mid-20s after dating for a good portion of their 20s. Of course, they were also having to deal With the pressures of rising fame and also writing new material, so finding themselves creatively inspired, Stevie told Rolling Stone of this time, the best explanation is try working with your secretary in a raucous office and then come home with her at night. See how long you could stand her. I could be no comfort to Lindsay when he needed comfort.
0: Yeah, so as they are living in Sausalito, as they are working on this album Rumours, we know that things are not well between Lindsay and Stevie. Let's put them to a side, put them to the side for just a second, Zara. Leave them to simmer because we need to talk about what the fuck's going on with John and Christine McVie. Yeah, 100%. So John and Christine McVie
1: actually did break up for good in the middle of the band's 1975-1976 tour. They had been married for eight years. Now, I know this means the timeline's a bit funky, but all it means is just before they started recording this album, John and Christine had split after eight years years of marriage. Looking back on this period, Christine told Rolling Stone that the two of them were, and I quote, very happy for probably three years. And then the strain of me being in the same band as him started to take its toll. When you're in the same band as somebody, you're seeing them almost 24 hours a day. You start to see an awful lot of the bad side because touring is no easy
0: thing. Mm. Very similar to what Stevie Nicks just said. Yeah, absolutely. Christine also said that John's relationship with alcohol really had an impact on their marriage and a negative one at that. She was quoted saying to Rolling Stone, there was a lot of drinking. John is not the most pleasant of People when he's drunk, very belligerent. I was seeing more Hyde than Jekyll. So things had been complicated for a little while, to say the least. According to a book written by Bob Brunning around 1973, so three years prior, Christine had an affair with Fleetwood Mac's producer, a man by the name of Martin Birch. For a while, she was actually considering leaving the band to make a solo album with Martin Birch. But the idea was squashed when Birch decided to go back to his wife and Christine decided to give it another crack with John McVie. Yeah. So that was three years before they're going to record this album for rumours. And you can imagine they're not on the strongest
1: foundation at all. Like Christine has already had an affair with the band's producer. So you can imagine the insecurity that kind of, you know, manifests after that anyway Ultimately, by 1976, things just still weren't working. Christine was actually the one to break up with John. She told Rolling Stone... I was aware of it being rather irresponsible. I had to do it for my sanity. It was either that or me ending up in a lunatic asylum. I still have a lot of love for John. Let's face it, as far as I'm concerned, it was him that stopped me loving him. Mm. Now, that language about lunatic asylums and all those kinds of things is definitely not language that we would use today. But that is the quote that she gave at the time Mm. about how this relationship was making her feel.
0: Yeah. Can I also just comment, like, why... Why the affairs with people in the band? Like in the last episode, we heard that Jenny Boyd slept with another Fleetwood Mac group member. Why did Christine sleep with the group's producer? Like isn't there that age-old adage of, sorry for being crass, but don't shit where you eat or whatever? Like why? Go outside the band if you want to have an extramarital affair.
1: Yeah, well, that was 1973. Just you wait for the year that we're (laughs) actually talking about because it's about to get a whole lot worse. (laughs) So while the band tried to work on rumours, Christine and John weren't speaking to each other, which just would be so stressful. Like, Mm. you know those times when you might be out for dinner or drinks with friends and there's that couple sitting at the table who are clearly mid-argument and that tension just sort of saturates the
0: entire group. Imagine this, but your work set up and 24-7. Absolutely. To make matters worse, almost immediately after leaving her husband, John, Christine entered a relationship with the band's lighting director. (laughs) She entered a relationship with a man by the name of Curry Grant. Speaking to The Guardian decades later, she recalled her bandmate's reaction when they discovered this new relationship. She said, when they found out I was seeing him, he got fired shortly after because of it. I didn't really bring fellas on the road with me after that. No shit. (laughs) Good call, Christine.
1: (laughs) So that is John and Christine. Now the last member of the band that we haven't touched on and his relationship falling apart is Mick Fleetwood. So 29-year-old Mick was having relationship troubles, as we mentioned, with his wife Jenny. To give a little bit more background on their dynamic, they actually met in high school when she was 15 and he was 16 in 1963. They started dating a year later and got married in 1970. So these two people were like childhood sweethearts. What's really interesting about Jenny's role with Fleetwood Mac in their early days, before Stevie Nicks and before Lindsay Buckingham were even there, is that Jenny apparently wrote all of the lyrics to the band's song Purple Dancer and some of the lyrics for their song Jewel-Eyed Judy, but she wasn't given any credit. She told The Guardian their manager wanted his band to be the guy's. To have Mick's wife have credit, he wouldn't want that, so he gave it to Mick.
0: Mm, According to The Guardian, Jenny was often left alone also, while Mick was either recording new albums or working on music or touring with the band. Jenny was left alone to take care of their first child, and she really bore the brunt of a lot of that, like domesticity in the early years. She said, over the next few years, according to The Guardian, her loneliness ballooned while Fleetwood's ambition exploded. She once told Fox News that she felt like she was bringing up their two young children alone. You can see this,
1: can't you? You can see it so, so clearly. This woman, who clearly has talent because she's helped craft some of these songs for Fleetwood Mac, never given any credit, left at home while Mick rides the highs of being this rock star and she is left to raise the children with, I imagine, very little thanks or appreciation She spoke to The Guardian about that affair that she had with another member of Fleetwood Mac in the early days, Bob Weston. And she said, the affair I had with Bob, I felt so guilty about it. It took me many years to get over it because it was so against my nature. I'm a naturally monogamous person.
0: Yeah, she continued, if you're going to be with someone who's clearly an artist, who's deeply dedicated to what they do, then you need something that you're passionate about. Otherwise, you're just an extension of someone else's dream. Sadly, I never felt I was creative. I felt so locked inside. I just have a huge amount of sympathy for Jenny Boyd in this story. Like, yes, she screwed up and she shouldn't have had an affair with Mick Fleetwood's bandmate, but you can also kind of see how that would potentially be a cry out for attention from your husband or like a cry out for your husband to notice how lonely you are, to even notice you at all. I
1: think one of the saddest lines you can read is like, otherwise you're just an extension of someone else's dream. Like Mm. that is so sad to read. And I feel like so many women, particularly of this time and earlier, would relate to that on such a visceral level. Mm. So soon after Mick found out about that affair that happened years earlier, as we know, Bob was dumped from the band The couple got back together and they seemed to try and commit to making it work, but it did take its toll. That affair did take its toll on Mick in the same way that any affair kind of keeps the relationship rocky. He told Uncut that like the rest of his bandmates' relationships, his marriage at this point when they're about to go in to record rumours is also falling apart. Mm. This is his quote. By the time we got to Rumours, the emotional roller coaster was in full motion and we were all in a ditch. Everybody knew everything about everybody and I was definitely piggy in the middle. It was a total mess and that's how we made the album.
0: Yeah, so Jenny and Mick Fleetwood ended up divorcing in 1976. Again, the same year that we are talking about when Rumours was recorded. So Zara, we've got two divorces in the year of 1976. We also have a litany of drug problems going on, don't we? Yeah, we absolutely do. And it does pose the question of how did
1: Fleetwood Mac actually get through this? Truthfully, they almost didn't. Mick Fleetwood once admitted that recording the album, and he quotes, almost killed us. Christine described the Sorcerito sessions to Rolling Stone as trauma, adding that, and I quote, of course John and me were not exactly the best of friends. She told The Guardian that while she and John tried to be civil, Stevie and Lindsay
0: were fighting constantly. I mean, when she says civil, does that mean like I just didn't speak to him? I think civil would mean we're not actively like punching each other in the studio. We're not actually like entering verbal slinging matches. We're just dealing with each other, even when we don't like it. Christine said that Lindsay wasn't coping very well with all the fighting between himself and his on again, off again, girlfriend, Stevie. She said Lindsay was pretty down about it for a while. Then he just woke up one morning and said, fuck this. I don't want to be unhappy and started getting some girlfriends together. Then Stevie couldn't handle it. What do we mean started getting some girlfriends together? Like, I'm guessing this means he just started having seeing a, sex with a, a lot of women. A whole
1: bunch of women, I imagine. Looking back on this time, Stevie told The Guardian in 2013 that while the band was trying to put on a good front for the fans, things were going terribly behind the scenes. So while they were writing this album in 1976, they were actually still trying to do a couple of shows here and there. So Stevie told The Guardian that they were very cool on stage. But off stage, everybody was pretty angry. Most nights, Christine and I would just go for dinner on our own downstairs in the hotel with security at the door.
0: Mm, John McVie also told Rolling Stone that us lads had our thing too. The boys had, and I quote, parties going all over the house. Amazing, terrifying, huge amounts of illicit materials, yards and yards of this wretched stuff. Days and nights would just go on and on. It was very loose. You've got this imagery of the men having these like rambunctious parties, these out-of-control parties while the women are downstairs having dinner in the restaurant. Yeah, which I don't know is that accurate
1: either, like as just a single portrayal of this band, because we know, at least from all of the research we've done about Fleetwood Mac, Feels a little bit like Stevie and Christina are actually the mildly more edgy ones here. (laughs) They feel like the mildly more rogue ones. And more and more detail will come to light this episode that may prove that point. The drug use was a way, the the band say, that they tried to cope with the intense emotions and the gruelling hours of recording rumours. Stevie told Mojo magazine of that time, You felt so bad about what was happening that you did a line to cheer yourself up. (laughs) Mick once famously worked out, and God knows how he worked this out, (laughs) that if he laid all the cocaine he had ever snorted into a single line, it would stretch for seven miles or which is 11 kilometres. I mean, it does pose the question of like... How thick or thin is this line? Like, there are a lot of technicalities going on about here, but he says 11 kilometres, which is just ridiculous. (laughs) It's
0: insane. So Mick wrote in his autobiography, Play On, the tales of excess are true, but we'd all be dead already if we weren't made of stronger stuff. According to Rolling Stone, cocaine played such a major role in the production and creation of rumours that the band considered thanking their drug dealer, In the credits.
1: Yes, but he was actually murdered before the album came out, which still doesn't answer the question of why they didn't put him in anyway. Like him being dead doesn't change that, does
0: it? Well, they're trying to get him more business to be like, this is the dealer we use who got this album out of us. They can't
1: name him.
0: because Maybe they didn't want to be attached to something that was so bloody and murderous. Maybe.
1: Anyway, (laughs) the band was determined apparently to not let their personal drama stop them from putting out the album Big Fleetwood wrote in his 2014 memoir, We refused to let our feelings derail our commitment to the music, no matter how complicated or intertwined they became. It
0: was hard to do, but no matter what, we played through the hurt. Mm, Stevie says that she would sometimes seek refuge in an unused studio down the hall from where the band were working. So she once told the publication Blender, It was a black and red room with a sunken pit in the middle where there was a piano and a big black velvet bed with Victorian drapes. Bizarre room to say the least. But she says that she went here and got the very, very best out of her own mind. Yeah, because she was
1: so far, I say so far, down the hall from the drama and the tension. She said in a documentary called Classic Albums Rumours, which was obviously about the album. I would take an electric piano with me and my crocheting and my journals and my books and my art and I would just stay there until they needed me.
0: Yeah, Rolling Stone wrote of this time as they added finishing touches to an album more intimate than they had ever anticipated, the band firmly closed their studio doors. John McVie added, "It was clumsy sometimes. I'm sitting there in the studio and I get a little lump in my throat, especially when you turn around and the writers sitting right there."
1: Yeah, and we will get to these specific songs and the messages that were being shared through those songs right after the break. All right, Mish. So we've just left off with John McVie saying that when they were putting the finishing touches on this album and they were playing the songs to each other, they would often get little lumps in their throat because these songs were very emotional and very charged. So let's talk about the songs themselves. And I feel like this will very much make people want to listen to this album Mm -hmm. back. I wish we could play this album through this episode, but for many copyright reasons, we (laughs) cannot. (laughs) But many of the songs on the album have been confirmed to be about what
0: was going on with the band at the time and inside all of their relationships. Yeah. So Stevie once told Rolling Stone, all of the songs I wrote, except maybe Gold Dust Woman, and even that comes into it, are definitely about people in the band. Christine's relationships, John's relationship, Mick's relationship, Lindsay's and mine. They're all there and they're very honest and people will know exactly what I'm talking about. Let's
1: start with Dreams, shall we? That is the song that I feel like has had the biggest modern resurgence for people in our generation. Now, Stevie Nicks wrote the song Dreams in 10 minutes. I find it ridiculous when I hear stories like that, that a song so iconic can be penned down in 10 minutes. She wrote that song in that little room she would retreat to down the hall. And this is what she said about it. I sat down on the bed with my keyboard in front of me. I found a drum pattern, switched my little cassette player on and wrote dreams in 10 minutes. When she was finished writing this song, she marched back to the studio where
0: Fleetwood Mac were working. She handed the cassette tape to Lindsay. Yeah, she told the Daily Mail, It was a rough take, just me singing solo and playing piano. Even though he was mad at me at the time, Lindsay played it and then looked up at me and smiled. What was going on between us was sad. We were couples who couldn't make it through. But as musicians, we respected each other.
1: Yeah, so Dreams was Stevie's way of writing about her breakup with Lindsay. So... (laughs) Fuck that. So awkward. Yeah, and in the song, as we know, she sings lyrics like, now here you go again, you say you want your freedom, well, who am I to keep you down? She also sings, oh, thunder only happens when it's raining. It sounds way weirder when you say, yeah. oh, <laughs> Players only love you when they're playing. Say women, they will come and they will go. When the rain washes you clean, you'll know. Mm. I mean, imagine being Lindsay hearing this song for the first time, knowing it's about you, but also knowing that it's quite a track. Yeah,
0: it's a banger. And Lindsay Buckingham kind of delivered a counterpunch to that banger with his own song, Go Your Own Way. So this Had lyrics like, Loving you isn't the right thing to do. How can I ever change things that I feel? Stevie was not stoked about this track that kind of put blame onto her a little bit for their breakup. This song is far more brutal than Dreams. If you play these back to back, Dreams is not a particularly brutal
1: breakup song. It's a breakup song, but the lyrics aren't nasty. Go Your Own Way is like literally go your own fucking way. Like, fuck fuck off. Yeah. So she was particularly resentful, apparently, about one line as well in this song. She told Rolling Stone, I very much resented him telling the world that packing up, shacking up with different men was all I wanted to do. He knew it wasn't true. It was just an angry thing he
0: said. Mm. To make matters worse... She had to sing this song. She had to sing it. Yeah. She it's was like your it's ex saying. being like, here are all the things I hate about you. Now go in front of tens of thousands of people every night and repeat them. Like, It's so bizarre. So she also says this haunted her. Every time she had to perform it on stage, she really, truly didn't want to. She once said, every time those words would come out on stage, I wanted to go over and kill him. He knew it. So he really pushed my buttons through that.
1: Stevie said she thought of those two songs of Dreams and Go Your Own Way as twin songs because they were both written in response to the same event. In the notes that accompany the Rumours album reissue in 2013, Stevie wrote, Lindsay is saying, go ahead and date other men and go live your crappy life. And I'm singing about the rain washing you clean.
0: We were coming at it from opposite angles, but we were really saying the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently secondhand news and never going back again were also written by Lindsay about the breakup with Stevie. Stevie. The song Songbird was written by Christine McVie about the bittersweet breakup from her husband, John, and kind of hinted that she loved him, but not enough. To be with him. Yes. <laughs> yes. It included lines like, and I wish you
1: all the love in the world, but most of all, I wish it for myself, which as Pitchfork did right, was an especially heart-wrenching line given that McVee's not quite ex-husband was dragging a rebound model chick to the sessions and Christine was sneaking around with a member of the crew. It's true. It's like a very meaningful line for this couple who are so incredibly dysfunctional and both moved on very, very quickly in front of each other.
0: Yeah, to add fuel to this oh, fire that is raging between Christine and John. Christine wrote a song about her love affair with lighting director Curry Grant. She titled it, You Make Loving Fun. Yeah, there's no real getting around that. <laughs> there's nothing else
1: you can say. The thing about this is apparently to avoid drama with John over that song. So he didn't think that maybe she was writing it about her new relationship. She told him that it (laughs) had been inspired by their dog. How did he buy that? I don't even... He can't have. It's, It's just it's messed up in its own way. Let's talk about Oh Daddy for a second, the song Oh Daddy. Even Mick Fleetwood had a song written about his own marriage drama. So Christine McVie apparently wrote Oh Daddy about his on-again, off-again relationship with his wife and their inevitable divorce.
0: Yeah. So we've got some excellent, excellent songs, some very personal songs, but songs that prove to be a commercial issue. Hit. The album was released on the 4th of February 1977, so about a year after they first sat down to start writing songs and became the fastest-selling LP of all time. It was moving 800,000 copies per week at the height of its prominence. Insane. According to Pitchfork, the album's success made Fleetwood Mac
1: a cultural phenomenon. The record, and I quote, became a totem of 1970s excess rock and roll at its most gloriously indulgent. But Pitchfork wrote, setting aside the weight of history, listening to rumors is an easy pleasure. In this case, you could never have owned a copy of it and still know almost every song. It is like any iconic album, but it doesn't feel particularly angry to listen to or draining to listen to. It's often an album I'll put on. When I just sort of want something a bit boppier in the in the apartment,
0: yeah. Mitch and I put it on last week when we were in the car together. It just feels it's, almost like a car trip. Yes, hundred percent. It's very road trippy
1: too, isn't it? Because I think that line from Pitchfork is bang on. Even if you've never owned a copy of it, you know almost all the songs. Yeah,
0: the drama did not end there. It's not as if this album was released and suddenly all wounds were healed. We could not do this episode without touching on what the happened once Rumours was released.
1: Yes. So we're talking actually now about a new relationship that blossomed out of this album. And we're talking about an affair that began between Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood. So. How? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I do know how. So (laughs) we will tell you. So apparently this all started with a photo shoot, right? There was this iconic Rolling Stone cover shot that was used to promote rumours that showed all of the members of Fleetwood Mac lying in bed together. And it was this iconic cover that sowed the seeds of Stevie's affair with Mick. We will put this cover on Instagram, Mish, because it
0: is a really iconic cover. Absolutely. It was shot by the famous photographer Annie Leibovitz in March 77 and then ran on the actual cover in November that year, which really takes me back (laughs) as to how long the kind of media cycle was back then. So it was released in November. By this point, the album had truly truly become a sensation. Apparently, when this was shot back in March that year, Fleetwood Mac all arrived at Annie Leibovitz's studio And as was customary at the time in the rock industry, she kind of brought out platters of cocaine for the band to share. Yeah, exactly. So she said,
1: in those days for photo shoots, you just brought cocaine. I took it out and they looked a little freaked out at first, but then consumed it in like 30 seconds. Then I learned they'd all recently been to rehab, so they were all a little jittery and tense. (laughs) Just what? I know. So timeline-wise... This is being shot a month after the band's released. They recorded this album a year prior. So you can imagine maybe they've spent the year after that trying to kind of maybe clean up their acts. They probably Mm. had too much of a wild time while recording the album and thought, let's clean ourselves up. By the time they get to this studio, obviously. Cocaine
0: galore. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Annie, the photographer, asked them all to lie down on a bed together like you said, Zara. Zara. And wanted the two ex-couples to be embracing. So Mick wrote of this moment in his autobiography that it was pretty tricky because they were kind of all trying to deal with these interpersonal problems and not everyone was keen on cuddling up to their ex. Yeah, exactly. So Annie's idea behind this cover was that it was supposed to play off
1: all the rumours about the band's private lives, but also... The idea that being such a tight-knit group, they were actually basically all married to each other. But Stevie and Lindsay were not having it. These two were not civil in their breakup. Their breakup apparently was still far too raw. Lindsay said, for Stevie and me, the wounds and animosities were still very fresh. So the idea of the photo wasn't all that funny.
0: Yeah, Stevie put her foot down and said, fuck no, I'm not cuddling my ex. (laughs) So instead curled up next to Mick Fleetwood for the next three hours. Christine also said she didn't want to be next to her ex-husband, John, because they had recently divorced. So she laid next to Lindsay. Meanwhile, John sat by himself reading a copy of Playboy magazine. (laughs) 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 Interestingly, the photo
1: shoot did lead, and this is a confusing part about this story, but just bear with us, to a slight rekindling or a very brief rekindling between Stevie and Lindsay. Stevie said, Afterwards, Lindsay and I got to talking about how amazing it was that not so long ago I was a waitress and he didn't have a job. And now we were on the cover of Rolling Stone with this huge record. And we lay there for about two hours talking and making out. Finally, Annie had to tell us to leave because she had rented the room out only for so long. So wait,
0: so they refused to do the three hour photo shoot in the bed together. But then once everyone else leaves, they get talking, start making out for two hours And then the photographer has to be like, can you guys please go home now? Yeah. And on top of that, this is the photo
1: shoot that Stevie said sowed the seeds for her affair with Mick Fleetwood. So I don't know what the fuck was going on in this dynamic between the five of them, but there was quite a bit going on. Now, as we said, the shoot was what caused Mick Fleetwood to discover that he had feelings for Stevie. He wrote that the shoot made him realise that he and Nick's, and I quote, definitely had known each other in previous lives. Meanwhile, Stevie said that the photo shoot planted the seed for Mick and me, which happened a year later. I'm tired already.
0: I was about to say, how are these people doing so many drugs, releasing such culturally significant art and having sex with each other this much. It is exhausting. So the affair between Mick and Stevie started during a late summer break in the band's tour. So it was the end of 1977, about a month after that Rolling Stone cover came out, actually. They were just about to set off on the final leg of the Rumours tour in New Zealand, Australia and Japan. Now Mick apparently, when they started this flirtation, would sneak away from home to be with Stevie and they would drive up and down in his car so that they could spend time together. Yeah,
1: so according to the biography, by the end of the first night on their tour of Auckland November six, it had become a full-blown affair. Now... We call it a full blown affair because both of them were in relationships at the time. Stevie was dating Don Henley from the Eagles. Meanwhile, Mick had actually got back with his ex-wife, Jenny Boyd, who he had remarried that same year, a year after they got divorced. So Mick Fleetwood and Jenny Boyd were only divorced for about a year before they remarried. And he's only back together for a few months before he's having an affair with Stevie
0: Nicks on her. It feels like we're talking about aliens, not people who were just living this way like 50 years ago. Jenny Boyd eventually told Fox News, I still wanted it to work. I really, really wanted us to be together. Always. I never wanted to get divorced. I wanted to be together for our children. And it was so hard, you know.
1: So Mick and Jenny divorced for a second and final time in 1978. And Jenny told The Guardian that she actually didn't talk to Stevie for years. She told Fox News that last year she actually forgave Stevie and said she understood how the affair happened. She said she was obviously very pretty. And if you're creating with somebody and constantly on the road, constantly singing together and just experiencing this euphoria of being up on stage, there was bound to be an attraction. I mean, relatively mature quote, it was 50 years later. So I imagine Mm -hmm. you're pretty over it by then. But what's interesting about this affair is there's very little detail, I guess, about how it might have blown up in their faces or how people found out like Mm -hmm. this affair and how it's told amongst all the other drama in Fleetwood
0: Mac is very much a side note. Very much with hindsight as well where kind of the grittier aspects are maybe brushed over a little like we don't know a lot of how that played out but it would be fascinating to be a fly on the wall during that time. So Stevie and Mick are together, and Stevie has referenced this relationship as being one of her great, great loves. In fact, she once told Oprah that their relationship was beautiful, but also, and I quote, a doomed thing that caused a lot of pain to everybody.
1: Yeah, so they were reportedly in an on-again, off-again relationship for about a year until the end of 1978. And the thing I find most interesting about this relationship is it didn't last very long. Mm. It didn't feel like it was ever something that was destined to last very long. So were they just sort of playing with fire? In 1978, when the band were recording their double album called Tusk, Mick Fleetwood actually started a relationship with one of Stevie's best friends, Sarah. Sarah had been around the band for a while. Stevie even had her come into some recording sessions And so began the demise of Stevie and Mick's relationship.
0: According to a biography of Stevie's life, Mick invited Sarah to go for a drive and told Sarah that he and Stevie were over. He apparently had failed to tell Stevie this information because he began seeing Sarah before he had broken up with Stevie. Of this time, Stevie told The Independent that, and I quote, I had started to see Mick Fleetwood romantically. I had a very dear friend whose name was Sarah who just went after Mick and they fell in love. And the next thing, Sarah's husband is calling me to say, Sarah moved in with Mick this morning. And I just thought you might want to know. It was three months into a 13 month album. So I lost Mick, which honestly, wasn't that big of a deal because that was a rocky relationship. But losing my friend, Sarah, that was a huge blow. Sarah was banished from the studio by the rest of the band. No one was speaking and I wouldn't even look directly at Mick. That went on for months and it was great fodder for writing. (laughs) The songs poured out of us. My
1: word. This is the thing we focus so much on the drama around rumors, but there was so much drama Mm. even still to come. Mick actually ended up marrying Sarah and they were together for seven years. Quoted in Rolling Stone, Mick Fleetwood did say that while his relationship with Stevie didn't last, he would always think fondly of her. (laughs) Like... Well, yeah. Yeah, you you cheated on her. And you also worked with her in a band that was incredibly successful for a long time. And she wrote your best songs that gave you the most money. (laughs) He said this, we just loved each other in the true sense of the word, which transcends passions. I will take my love for her as a person to my grave because Stevie Nicks is the kind of woman who inspires that devotion. I have no regrets and neither does she, but we do giggle together sometimes and wonder what might have transpired if we'd given that passion the space and time to blossom into something more.
0: I have a theory. I wonder what you're going to think about this. I feel like these band members had seen like initial success that when they had personal turmoil, when they had scandals erupt, great art came out of it. Do you think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point where they went, When we are living purely based on our impulses, when we let all of our inhibitions go, the best art comes and the most success comes. Do you think that became something where they're like, well, we must live out our most grandiose desires. We must live out all of these affairs that we want to have, live impulsively, because that's what makes the band good. Yeah, I don't think it would have been
1: conscious at all, but I think there would have been something subconscious about the fact that they are the best artists and the best versions of themselves when they aren't held back by anything or they Mm. aren't sort of caged in any box. Mm. And that would mean making decisions that are going to eventually hurt people. But hey, you can write a good song about it. (laughs) So what happened to Rumours and where is Fleetwood Mac today? After Rumours, the band released two albums before going on an indefinite hiatus in 1982. So between 1982 and 1985, Stevie, Lindsay and Christine put out solo records.
0: Stevie's solo record is the best, if I don't mind saying so myself. The band came back together in 1987 and wrote and released Tango in the Night. In 1987, Lindsay actually left the band just before they were about to head off on a 10-week tour for that album, He parted because he wanted more creative freedom, but mostly couldn't bear to be close to his ex-girlfriend Stevie Nicks anymore.
1: Yeah, which is remarkable because we spoke about the recording of Rumours and that breakup being in 1976, which is 11 years before we're talking about him saying, I need to leave the band. I can't be around her anymore. Mm. He said... I needed to get some separation from Stevie, especially because I don't think I'd ever quite gotten closure on our relationship. I needed to get on with the next phase of my creative growth and my emotional growth. When you break up with someone and then for the next 10 years, you have to be around them and watch them move away from you. It is not easy.
0: After that, the gang. So Mick Fleetwood, Stevie Nicks, Lindsay Buckingham, Christine and John McVie were very transient. I mean, sometimes a couple of those original members were in the group. Sometimes they were joined by others. It was very much like kind of a revolving door of who was there and who wasn't over the next couple of decades. They never achieved the same success that they did with Rumours. Rumours was absolutely their number one album. And I mean, I don't blame them. It would be almost impossible to surpass what they had achieved together. Well, there is a point where you have to
1: peak. Mm. Like you can't just keep building and building and building because even their Fleetwood Mac album is incredibly iconic. So for them to surpass that with something even better was unheard of. Anyway, after six years away, Stevie Nicks actually returned to Fleetwood Mac and is still in the band today. Lindsay actually eventually rejoined the band as well too. The only member that hadn't for a long time was Christine McVie. She actually sold her LA home and spent the next 16 years after leaving the band in 1988 in a small rural town near Canterbury in the UK. So
0: she really sold up and ran away. She did. She then, though, turned back and said, wait, I want to rejoin. She rejoined Fleetwood Mac in 2014. And suddenly, in the mid-2010s, we find the band back together again. However, Zara, it was not long-lived. It wasn't long-lived. I mean, it wouldn't be Fleetwood Mac without ongoing and enduring
1: scandals. So in 2018, just four years after the band had got back together, headlines emerged that Fleetwood Mac had fired Lindsay Buckingham. Now, Lindsay claimed that two days after the band were honoured at a benefit concert in New York, the band's manager rang him up to say, Stevie never wants to work with you again. (laughs) He alleged that he was given a list of things that Stevie took issue with at that New York performance, including how he had smirked during her thank you speech and that he had an outburst over the band's intro music of Rihanna.
0: <laughs> Lindsay said that Stevie had given the band an ultimatum. She said her or him and that the band had picked Stevie Nicks. Now a quick reminder, by this point in time, Lindsay Buckingham was 71, Stevie Nicks was 72 And the tension that dogged them in their 20s is still here 50 years later. It is
1: remarkable. Like these two have one of the most interesting and iconic relationships because they were so in love for maybe five or six years of their life. And because they never were really able to escape each other, they never escaped the anger and tension that came after that. Lindsay actually went on to sue the band for breach of contract and he privately settled the dispute outside of court. Now, the only person that we can see at the moment who has said that they have reconnected with Lindsay is Mick Fleetwood. But Stevie and Lindsay, we know still to this day as we record have not reconnected.
0: Yeah, Lindsay actually appeared to reignite old tensions with Stevie Nicks in a Rolling Stone interview just a few months ago in September, saying that Stevie ousted him from the group because, and I quote, she wanted to shape the band in her own image, a more mellow thing. Wow. Love that we end on this petty note, this absolutely petty note. I love that they're now 73 and 72 respectively and this feud is alive and well. Some people never change. Some people never change. That is
1: all we've got for you today. I'm a bit tired just after recording this and I didn't live (laughs) through any of it. What a remarkable band and what a remarkable set of music they have. I have no doubt that everyone listening to this now is going to jump straight onto Spotify and stream
0: this stuff because it feels very nostalgic to go back and do. Yeah, and as you do that, as you play Rumours out in your apartment or on your drive, wherever you are right now, please take a photo of your surroundings, tag us on Instagram, upload it to your story and tag at shamelesspodcast. We want to kind of... Live through, you guys. See where you listen to this series because it's been a very, very rollicking one for both of us to record.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for listening and big thank you to our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, who researched this with help from you and I, Mish. Guys, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. As always, we will have a whole gallery of very nostalgic photos there for you. But in the meantime, we will be back in your ears on Thursday for a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. We
0: absolutely will. Bye, guys. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through